Lord, our, our God, we humbly come before you and we thank you for this study in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of, of, of coming together to learn more of you. And we ask, Father, your blessing upon this time. We ask, God, that we wouldn't, that your word would do its work in our heart, that we wouldn't leave this place the same as when we came in. God, that we would fall more in love with you because of the time we spend in your word today. I thank you for that. Lord, I ask a, a blessing upon my words. I ask, God, that you would help me to rightly divide your word, God, that I would not lead anyone to the left or to the right, God, that you would help me to speak clearly and, to, and that our hearts would understand and that all of us would come to love you more. That's, that's the intent. That's the purpose of this time together. We ask that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I love chapter 2. That's what we've been, we studied the last couple weeks. The... Uh, two different sides of Jesus. The the uh, I don't know how to describe it. The the different stories that they they put together there in chapter two. Now I know when John wrote the scripture, he didn't write number two verse one and start writing. They didn't have verses and chapters. But whoever when they when they put the scriptures together, when they decided on the canon, they put in the chapters and what have you. They put these two stories together in one chapter, the, the story of Jesus changing water to wine and Jesus going into the temple and cleansing it. And I like that because we see very different sides of Jesus, but the same guy, the same God. He's passionate about the things of the Lord. That's what we see when he goes in and, and, and kicks out the, the, the animals and, and the money changers and what have you. And we also see a very loving, very joyful God, one that wants us to have joy in, in changing water into wine. And so just love that chapter. And then as I've been studying chapter three, I'm like, this dude Nicodemus that we're going to read about today, I, I just, he's like, I don't know. I, I, I tweeted it earlier this week. I, I really would have liked to sit down with him over a cup of coffee and just hang out and chat. I, I think me and Nicodemus... I'd like to call him Nick if it's okay with him. You know, it would be, I think we'd get along pretty well. I don't know. I just, I, I see something in his heart, and hopefully I can bring that out as we study that I have in my own heart and have had in my own heart. And, and, and I think you have it in your heart too. And that's a, a, a genuine curiosity for the things of the Lord. And so that's what I see in Nicodemus. And so, so let's read about him and, and the, the one-on-one -on -one conversation that he gets with Jesus. Imagine that. How cool would that be? With a one-on-one -on -one time. And, and so this, that's what chapter 3 is. Verse 1 would say, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. All right, we'll pause there for a second. We need to talk about that. That's an introductory, introductory sentence. But as you and I are students of the Word, what can we glean from it? What do we learn? What do we, what do we see from? Well, we learn a little bit about Nicodemus. First of all, that he was a man. Duh. Yeah, okay, we got that. He's a man, but not just a particular man. A man of the Pharisees. All right, well, we need to dig a little bit and make sure we understand what that means. The man, a man of the Pharisees. We know if you've studied the Gospels at all, Jesus finds himself in, in interchanges with the Pharisees quite often. Well, who was this group of people? We talked about it a little bit when we started the book of John, but let's talk a little more. First of all, it, it was one of the religious groups of the day. It was one of the leader, leaders of the country of Israel. They, they were part of a, a group of men that led the, the, the people of Israel, in, specifically in the law. 
the law of God, that is. Okay? So there was, at the time, 6,000 men that were Pharisees. Now, you've got to think about that for a minute. That sounds like a large number, but really it was an elite group of men. Because remember what's going on at this time as we studied chapter 2? They're there in Jerusalem, the Passover is going on. And remember I told you, as people come to the Passover, normally a 100,000 person city is now 1 million people. So there's 1 million people hanging around in Jerusalem. Of that, 6,000 men are, are the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees worked together with the scribes, and what they did is they said, we understand the law of God, but we want to explain it, and we want to follow it to the letter. And so they took the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and they wrote what's called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a commentary, essentially, on the law. It's, it's an explanation of the law. I'll give you an example of the Mishnah that the Pharisees were trying to follow to the letter. Okay, they don't, they, they said, yes, we're following the law of God, but we're going to take it to the point that we're going to follow the Mishnah, the commentary. We're going to follow it exactly. In Exodus chapter 20, or, yeah, 20 is the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt honor the Sabbath. Thou shalt keep the Sabbath. Right? Five, six words, whatever it is. Pretty plain and simple. One day out of seven is devoted to God. Thou shalt honor the Sabbath. That's what God's law says of it. The Mishnah has 24 chapters on what that means. 24 chapters on what it means to honor the Sabbath. Those of the Pharisees would know what the 24 chapters were and would attempt to follow the entirety of those 24 chapters on just one law, let alone the whole book. Not only did they have the Mishnah, they said, well, that's not quite good enough. We actually want to dive a little deeper. and say that, So they um, wrote the Talmud which was a commentary on the Mishnah, which was a commentary on the law. <laughs> and they said, we're going to keep it all. So they were very religious about the way they kept the law. They were very particular about the things that they did in demonstrating the keeping of the law and their knowledge of the law. So that's who Nicodemus is. He's one of these 6,000 guys. Knows the law inside out and backwards. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, he had memorized all of it. Not just a couple of verses. He had memorized the entire five books. That was one of the requirements to be a Pharisee. So he's well, well versed and well knowledgeable about the, the Old Testament, particularly the law. What else do we know about Nicodemus? Well, not only was he a Pharisee, it says there in verse one, he was a ruler of the Jews. So not only was he one of 6,000, really he was one of 70 called the Sanhedrin, 70 men chosen to rule there in Jerusalem over the entire nation of Israel. So not only is he elite, one of 6,000, he's elite, elite, one of the 70. Now what's even inter more interesting is as we go through the chapter, Jesus is going to call him the ruler of Israel. So it's very possible that Nicodemus was the guy in charge of it all. And he comes and he has a conversation with Jesus. We know that Nicodemus was rich. Now, we don't get that from verse 1, but we know that when Jesus dies, Nicodemus comes and he buys the spices for the burial preparation of Jesus. That was not a small feat. That was not something that was inexpensive. That was a large amount of spices that they would use. And it cost a lot to do that. So we know that Nicodemus had wealth. He had wealth. He had influence. He had power. And what I like about him 
And what we're going to see just right even here in verse 2 is he's going to Jesus. He didn't have to. If he's the ruler of Israel, all he has to do is snap his fingers and say, you bring Jesus to me. But he doesn't. And in that, there's a, a hint of humility, a hint of, of wondering. I, I, I really like this guy. Verse 2. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So there's his opening sentence to this conversation. Before we get to the conversation, though, I find it interesting. Nicodemus comes to him at night. Why? Well, there's, we don't know why. Possibilities, a couple different reasons. I've got a couple ideas. One, as he is the leader, one of the leaders of the, one of the 70, perhaps there were already some rumblings going on in the Sanhedrin, in the, in the Pharisees to say, hey, there's a guy out there performing miracles and doing all kinds of different things. And, and he's, you know, people are following him already, you know, first couple weeks into his ministry and they're leaving us. And so maybe there was some rumblings going on. And, and so Nicodemus is like, well, yeah, I've heard of that, but I don't want to go visit him so that all my peers know that I'm going to visit him. So he goes in the cover of night to meet with him secretly. Possibly. It could be that with the Passover going on, that there was too much going on during the day for them to meet. Jesus was a busy guy during the day. He was tossing temple tables. He was changing water to wine. He was doing different things. He had a lot of people following him, and so he was busy. Well, so would have Nicodemus been as the leader and with one million people to care for and to walk through the Passover with. He had a lot of responsibility. So maybe the night was the first opportunity he had to go. He was too busy during the day. But what I really, the, the explanation that I like the best is what John Corson would say. And I don't, like I said, I don't know if this is true or not. But in those days, you didn't have the air conditioning, the conveniences that you and I have. And during the day, it would get very, very warm. So what they would do is they would save their conversations. They would save their discussions for the evening when the, when the temperatures were cooler. They, they designed their houses with the intent of, of doing this. They would have a flat roof, and on that roof they would have like a, a patio. There'd be a small set of stairs going up the outside of the building, and they would go sit up on the roof in the evening in the cool of the day with the breezes and sit and have their conversations. I, it, I like that. I, I don't like. I said I don't know if it's true or not, but I can envision Jesus sitting there on a rooftop with Nicodemus. They've both got an iced tea in their hand, and they're and they're enjoying the, a cool evening. And that's kind of the scene I get, you know. Okay, what it was, I'm not sure. But they, he comes um, as or in the night, and he, he opens up his conversation with this sentence: "Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things." that you do unless God is with him. So initially, Nicodemus trying to express his impression, express his, his uh, heart toward Jesus to say, hey, you've got something special going on here. I'm very interested in it. Tell me more about it. You've got these miracles going on. My question to you, <clears throat> as we're students of the Word, is, is what Nicodemus says true? Is it only somebody that comes from God that can perform the miracles that Jesus was doing is what Nicodemus said true. And I would venture to say probably not. 
Yes, Jesus was performing miracles, but we have different examples. 2 Thessalonians 2.9, Revelation chapter 13, verse 13 through 14, that would suggest not just godly can perform the miracle. Jesus even says, yes, you perform miracles in my name, but depart from me, for I never knew you. So miracles can be performed without God backing it. We see that in the Old Testament when Moses is interacting with the magicians. But either way, whatever Nicodemus is saying, what he's trying to say is perhaps butter him up a little bit. And Jesus is like, I'm not having anything to do with that. We're not even going to talk about my miracles. Let's get to what you came here for. And he gets to the heart of the matter right there in verse 3. Smack dab. He doesn't even talk about the miracles at all. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, my friends, that is a very important verse. You and I need to grab a hold of that because Jesus makes an exclusive statement there to say, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. There are no questions here. There is only one way to see the kingdom of God, and that is by being born again. It's an exclusive statement. So the question is, do you want to see the kingdom of God? Okay, <laughs> good. <laughs> if not, we'll just stop here. You guys go home. It's fine. <laughs> but I'm hoping that you do. I know that I do. I would like to see the kingdom of God. Okay, the word tells me I must be born again. Great. What does that mean? Well, if you've grown up in church, if you've been around it long enough, you understand the Christianese and, and you can speak it and you know what being born again is. But this is the first time Nicodemus has ever heard this. And he's gonna he's gonna his short circuit a little bit and go, what are you what are you talking about? Born again. We uh, went and picked pumpkins on Friday night out at Circle S Farms with some people from church, and the Brown family was there, and Rebecca was there, and she's going to another fellowship right now, uh, and she was telling me a story of a, a a young lady who had actually been tricked into coming to a church service, which was pretty cool, <laughs> and. Uh, but a young lady that had not grown up in church at all had no idea the things or the ways of church. And, and you and I need to hear this because we speak our own language and we, we have our own identity and, and we understand things. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you kind of get some things that you forget that the world doesn't know. For example, this young lady, as they were coming into worship, um, uh, one of the guys sat down, one of the percussionists sat down on one of these boxes. Have you seen these before? It's called a cajon. It's an instrument, right? And it's used to keep beats. And we've seen that before. Mike plays it on a regular basis. And, and so we're kind of familiar with it. So this young lady, after the worship set, comes to, to Rebecca and she's like, who knew that was an instrument? <laughs> you know, that, that's pretty cool. And, and we kind of forget, oh, well, yeah, that's a cajon. Everybody knows that. And, you know, it's, a, it's, it's part of the worship set for the last 20 years it's been around. But this girl is new to it. And so she's intrigued by it, and she's excited about it. Who knew that was an instrument? And, and who knew that these were the things of God? And, and, and so uh, Nicodemus is at that point to say, Jesus, you're, you're, you're speaking something I, I don't understand. You must be born again. Now, I want to rabbit trail for just a minute. We'll get back to the text. Because I want to implore you and I 
to do something here. John chapter 3, verse 3. Incredibly important truth, yes? You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. That's pretty important that people know that. So, it should be underlined in your Bible. It should be highlighted in your Bible. More than that, it should be memorized in your heart. You should know this verse. We should know this verse. And here's why I want to make a bold statement on this little rabbit trail, just to encourage you and I. And I thought about this quite a bit this week, and I firmly believe it to be true. Here's my statement. There is nothing more important that you can do with your mind than memorize Scripture. There is nothing more important that you can do with your mind than memorize Scripture. And here's why I say that. You guys know I do garage doors for a living. You know, Monday through Friday, that's my gig. I, I go out and I fix doors. Are there going to be garage doors in heaven? No. I don't know. But this I do know, they aren't going to break. <laughs> so do I have a job fixing garage doors in heaven? No. So the knowledge that I've gained in fixing garage doors, the things that I do Monday through Friday here, is it going to be of any value to me in eternity? Those things. No. If you're a brain surgeon, if you're a rocket scientist, if you're a dishwasher, those things that you've learned will be of no value to you in the eternity. But the Word of God is eternal. And so when you write it on your heart, it's there forever. There is nothing more important that you can do with your mind than memorize Scripture. Start with John chapter 3, verse 3. Start writing that on your heart. And I, we had young, I don't know where, well, we have some young people in here. The younger you start, the easier it is. We've got, uh, we've had our kids in Bible quizzing for a while now. We've got Lily in it this year, memorizing eight to ten scriptures a month. By the end of it, she'll know 125 scriptures. At 11 years, 12 years old. How old is she? 11 years old. <laughs> I don't know. But it doesn't matter what your age Write it on the tablets of your heart. Memorize it. Write it out by hand. That helps with memory. Start with John chapter 3, verse 3. There's not, look at that truth again. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's pivotal to what we believe and to what we understand. We should know it. We should have it memorized. We should be able to explain it. Write it on your heart. Okay. Rabbit trail back. Nicodemus, coffee, iced tea on the rooftop. <laughs> Nicodemus here asks the logical question. This would be the question that I would ask hearing this phrase, born again, for the first time. Nicodemus said to him, verse 4, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I don't think Nicodemus is being facetious here at all. I don't think he's asking the logical question. What do you mean, born again? What, what are you talking about? How do we... We can't go back in a mom's womb and, and start over. I, even if he was referring to her, maybe even saying, well, maybe Jesus is talking about turning over a new leaf and being born again that way. He's like, I'm old. I, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. What are, you, what are you talking about being born again? He's asking the logical question here. And that's why I like him. Nicodemus is he's humble enough to say, what are you talking about? Keep telling me more. I, I need more information here. The, the, one of the rulers. I love that. He's, he's like, come on, keep talking to me. Verse 5. He's, Jesus is going to explain a little further. Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water 
and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, there's some more information. You want to enter the kingdom of God, right? Okay, a little quicker, better, better, keep coming. So yes, we want to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, we must be born again. What does that mean? That means to be born of water in the Spirit. That's what verse 5 would tell us. Born of water, well, what does that mean? Well, it was interesting as I was studying, speaking of being born of water, there's a big conflict about that. But I always, I'm going to give you, there's five explanations as to what Jesus meant when it comes to speaking of being born of water. I'm going to give you all five. You guys decide which one fits for you. And I, because I don't think that's the thrust of this verse. The verse is being born of the Spirit. And that's what being born again means. Being born of water could mean five different things. I'm going to give you all five. I'll tell you which ones I like. There's two of them that I think are possibilities. One, being born of water could mean being born of the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives in this way that you would wash them with the water of the Word. So it speaks, the Word of God is spoken of or, or assimilated as, a, as water. So it could be that you're born of the Word of God and born of the Spirit. Possibility number one. Number two could be that you're born being baptized of repentance or baptized in repentance. Let me say it that way. Remember, John the Baptist came, and he came baptizing them with water. Remember what he said. I will baptize you with water, but one is coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit, with fire. So it could be that you need to repent of your sins and then be baptized by the Spirit, be saved, to be, to be born again. Option number three, it could be the Holy Spirit. Speaking of water. Matthew chapter, sorry, John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. John calls the Spirit the living water. Now, of the five, that's the one that I think is probably the least likely because then if you were to insert the, you know, the Spirit there in, as water, it would say that you must be born of the Spirit and born of the Spirit. So it doesn't, that one doesn't quite fit for me, but that's one, one explanation that I came across as I was studying. And then number four and number five are my two favorites. Number four would be that you would be born of the new covenant. Ezekiel chapter 36 is a chapter that Nicodemus would know well as he knew the Old Testament. He would be familiar with it. And Jesus trying to draw him from his knowledge. There's a, the promise of the new covenant there in Ezekiel chapter 36. I'm going to read a couple of verses. This is what it says, starting with verse 25. It says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So maybe... Um, Jesus is trying to reach Nicodemus through his knowledge of Ezekiel chapter 36, of him waiting for the new covenant. And he's saying you need to be born of the new covenant like Ezekiel 36. But I think the most logical one would be that when he speaks of being born of water, what he is saying is that you must be born of woman. Because when you and I are born, we are born of woman, we are in a sack of water. It's not water, it's amniotic fluid, I get that, but it... It's clear. It kind of looks like water. And so 
I think in the context of the conversation, that's the one that makes most sense to me, perhaps the New Covenant one as well, but those are the five options as to what he's speaking about water there. So, um, but I think it means that you must be born of woman, born in a natural way, and then born of the Spirit as well. Otherwise, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He goes on to say in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Kind of speaking of those two terms now, born of the flesh is flesh. You're a natural man, and then born of the Spirit means to be born again. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. We're studying 1 Corinthians on Wednesday night, and I like what Paul has to say about the, the three different types of men that there are. There, in chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians, he explains, hey, there's three types of people. There's the natural, the natural man. That's you and I, as we're born into sin, we're not born with a clean slate. All of you are descendants. All of us are descendants of Adam. And so we are born as a natural man, a sinner. He would go on to say, then there is the spiritual man. That is the, the person that has surrendered their heart to Jesus Christ. They're living now in the spiritual life, uh, surrendered to him. And so there's the natural, the spiritual. And then the third option that he gives is the carnal. And that's the man that's supposed to be spiritual, but is acting naturally. The man that's, that's choosing to live according to his flesh and rather than according to the spirit. So, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, showing us that there are, there are two births that need to happen. And now, I think as Jesus is looking him in the eye, Nicodemus sitting there, he can see the wheels turning, the smoke coming out of his ears a little bit. <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> Look at verse 7. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus, chill. I, I kind of see you're, you're getting a little flustered here. Let's, let's, don't marvel at that. Let me explain it. Let me keep talking to you. He says in verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, Jesus, as I read that sentence, I have to sit and imagine myself in Nicodemus's shoes. He's trying to figure out what born again means, and Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear of its sound. <laughs> we were just talking about being, what do you, that doesn't help me at all, but it will. And Jesus explains it, but what is he trying to say? That which is where the wind blows. Do you remember being asked as a kid, being tricked as a kid? Hey, Johnny, do you see the wind? Oh yeah, Dad, I see the wind. See how it's it's blowing the trees. It's there in the trees, or it's kicking up the dust. Yeah, I see the wind. No, you don't. You don't see the wind. You can't see the wind. It's shapeless. It's colorless. You can't see the wind. You can see the effects of the wind. You can see that it's bending the branches. You can see that it's blowing the leaves. You can see that it's kicking up the dust. You can see the effects of the wind, but you cannot see the wind. What Jesus is saying, so is, true, so is that true of the Spirit. You and I, we cannot see Him. And I want to make that distinction because I made the mistake in the first service and I imagine you make it too. The Holy Spirit is not an it. I said, I said in the first service, you can see, um, you can see it, or you cannot see it. You cannot see the Holy Spirit. You cannot see it. And I had to stop. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I made the mistake. Let me demonstrate. We often refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. It's not an it. It's, it's a part of God. It's the entity of God. It's, it's the Holy Spirit is a him. 
We cannot see Him, the Holy Spirit, but we can see the effects of Him, can we not? We see a life changed. We see a life given to God. We see the demonstration of the gifts of the Holy Spirit as evidence to what He is doing in somebody's life. So it is with a man born of the Spirit. Now, Nicodemus at this point says, short circuit, overload, tilt, tilt. (laughs) And he asks the question in verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? What are you talking about? How is this possible? Now, perhaps he didn't go all ballistic like that or whatever. What do you, Jesus, what do you, but you see his heart? He's, he's still, uh, Jesus, come on, give me more. What are you talking about? How can these things be? I'm not ready to leave this conversation. I'm not giving up on you, Jesus. Keep talking to me. I love that heart. How can these things be? And what that tells me, this is Nicodemus. This is a, one of the 6,000. This is one of the 70. This is perhaps one of the one. Leaders, rulers, understands the Pentateuch, has it memorized, understands the Mishnah, understands the Talmud, has a great amount of knowledge, and he's short-circuiting over these simple truths that Jesus gives. God's wisdom is far greater than man's. Remember that truth. God's wisdom is so much superior that the simple things of God blow the natural man's mind. And that's why it takes faith to believe. It isn't logical. That's the the path Nicodemus is going down. It's going to take a step of faith. So Jesus answered and said to him, (laughs) I love this, Jesus. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? (laughs) He's like, come on, man. You're supposed to be one of the smart ones. You can't figure this out? But Jesus doesn't cut him off there either because the interaction going on is a genuine one. And and Nicodemus really wants to know. And how do we know that? Because he's at the end of Jesus' life. He's still there. And he's kind of figured it out. He's like, oh yeah, we just killed the Savior. And I want to do right. I want to buy the spices. I want to help in the burial. And and so we see Nicodemus gets it figured out. I love that though. You're a teacher. You don't know these things. He he would. It was a premier position that he had. He would understand his Old Testament knowledge, and and he can't figure these things out. It says in verse eleven, "Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness." Jesus says, and he says it in another time later in John. I'm about my father's business. What I'm doing here is not necessarily of my own accord. I'm submitting my will to the will of the father. And I'm accomplishing what he has sent me to do. And I'm coming to bear witness of him, of his love for the world. And and, and so that's what we are about. That's what he's saying. Uh, We speak what we know. We testify what we've seen. And most of the world rejects that witness. He says in verse 12, I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Speaking of Jesus. 
And I said at the beginning, I said underline verse verse 3, right? I said it, it was a foundational truth. It was a, pinnacle, a very pivotal truth, one that we need to understand. It is the very basics. What Jesus is explaining is the very basics of Christianity to say that you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. That is a very basic principle in Christianity. And he's saying, you don't get this because... Or rather, I'm telling you these earthly things. How is it that if I were to speak of the loftier things, the things of heaven, that you would understand them? But I still give Nicodemus credit. He's sticking through this. He keeps pressing. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Now, Jesus is going to give another example. John uh, 3.14. He's going to tell Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. We want to talk about the kingdom of God. We want to be there. Well, that's talking about eternal life. That's something that I want. Is that something you want? I hope so. If so, then what do we need to do? Well, we need to recognize that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent. Well, what is all that about? Well, certainly Nicodemus would know as he understood the, the, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. But just in case you don't, just in case we don't, let's look at it. Flip over to Numbers chapter 21. Early on in the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Number four, right? Book four. As we write these things in our heart, as we strive to memorize Scripture, did you guys happen to catch that three of the five songs we t- sang today were straight from the Word of God? The third song, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto thy path. That's Psalm 119, 119 verse 45. The next song, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33. The last song, I heard a voice from the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who shall, who shall go for us? That's Isaiah chapter 6. It's important to have these things written on our heart. Numbers chapter 21, you there? We're going to start in verse 4, explain this Moses lifting up the serpent. Verse 4 says, They then journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. This is speaking of the Israelites in the wilderness. Their souls became discouraged. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Not good. (laughs) Just so you know, as you're reading the Bible, we don't do everything that the Bible talks about. This is not a good example. We don't speak against God and against Moses. And here's their complaint. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. That would be the manna that God is providing on a daily basis. I'm not sure the word loathe should come across your lips as you're talking about God's provision for you. Just saying. And God agrees with me as we're going to see here. Or I agree with God. Let's say it that way. That's better. I agree with God in what happens here. They're complaining. Verse 6, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. You want to complain against God? No problem. We'll send fiery serpents don't know what that is scares me sounds like something out of a horror movie not just snakes snakes are bad enough 
Not just fire. Fire's bad enough. Fiery serpents. What that means, I don't know for sure. But the bite was bad enough that people were dying. Probably shouldn't complain against God. Just saying. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, you think? For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Interesting. They recognize that they erred. Good, you're dying. You recognize that you're in error. Uh, we need to repent. They do repent. We have sinned. They confess their, their, their fault here. We have sinned. Pray to God is the method that they had in those days. They didn't necessarily pray to God themselves. They went through the servant Moses. Moses then prays to God for them. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 8, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at it, the bronze when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Miraculous? Yeah. You don't just look at something and all of a sudden you're better without God intervening, especially snake bite. you got to suck the poison out, and you've seen the movies, right? <laughs> Moses, in the Old Testament, God says, hey, do this. Take, make a snake, put it on a pole, people look at it, they're better. Now you know. You know the heart of people. You are the heart of people. We all get this. We've all been there. There were some people in that crowd, they got bitten by the snake, and they said, that's stupid! There's no way I'm looking at a snake. And they die. <laughs> but those that did were saved. Those that did were saved. Now, what is Jesus talking about when He says, as that happened, so must it also happen to the Son of Man. Really, really cool. Catch this. Moses makes the serpent out of what? Bronze. Bronze. A bronze serpent. What does bronze represent in the, old in the, in the Bible? It represents judgment. What does the serpent represent in the Bible? Sin, Sin. right? John, uh, Genesis chapter 3, the serpent is the one that, that comes and, and deceives Eve and, and Adam, and, and so sin is represented often by the serpent in the, in the Scriptures. So what God is telling Moses to do is make something, make an, uh, a, a serpent, sin, judged out of bronze, that's the symbol that he makes. It's sin judged and put it on a pole. Sin judged. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. As Moses lifted up the serpent, demonstrating sin judged, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up so that the wrath of God could be poured out upon Him so that your sin, my sin, might be judged. And in that, we're forgiven. And in that, we have hope. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. The, the bronze serpent there, and all they had to do in order to be saved in the Old Testament was what? To look upon it or to believe. Same thing is true with Jesus. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, and you shall be saved. 
It just takes belief that what he did on the cross was he absorbed your sin. He absorbed my sin, the wrath for that sin God poured out upon him on the cross. He defeated that that sin. He defeated death. He resurrected to life, and that's what's earned him the right to sit at the right hand of the Father, judging the quick and the dead is what the Apostles' Creed would say. Love it. And he's saying, sitting there drinking coffee with Nicodemus, early on in his ministry, I know where I'm going. I know what this is about. I know what's going on. As Moses lifted up the serpent, you're familiar with that story, Nicodemus? Oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. Okay, that's the way I'm going to. I will be lifted on the cross that you can be born again and have eternal life. And then we come to John 3.16. Probably the most well-known verse in all of the Bible. And we'll talk about it next week. Let's stay and let's close in prayer. One, One thought on Nicodemus. I think what I love about him is that the law had the effect in his life that it was supposed to have. Romans chapter 7 would tell us that the intent and the purpose of the law is for us to recognize that we can't do it. We cannot live perfectly. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans chapter 3. But 7 would tell us the intent and the purpose of the law is to show us that we're dead. We don't live by the law. We die by the law. And I think Nicodemus had it figured out. It's amazing that none of the other 6,000 did. But his knowledge of the law has shown him his heart to recognize that, hey, I don't have this figured out. I, I can't do this on my own. The law has had the effect it's supposed to have. And I pray that it does in your life as well. Look through the Ten Commandments. Honestly, assess yourself. You will go over. You haven't kept one. And neither have I. And in that, the law does its job and shows us our need for a Savior. If you're a Christian in this house, thank you for being here. What I would encourage you to do is next week, bring somebody that's not. There will be never a more clear, concise explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ than John chapter 3, verse 16. That's the only, the only verse I'm going to teach next week. We're going to go through it at length. Find somebody that needs to hear it and bring them here, please. If you're not a Christian in this house today, first of all, welcome. And you're welcome here anytime. And if this information about being born again is kind of stirring your heart, God would say today's the day of salvation. Don't leave this place without knowing your Savior. Hopefully you see a need for a Savior. Jesus became that Savior for you. It's a a relationship that He wants to begin with you. I would love to talk with you about that after I finish praying. All right, let's go to Him. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, God, for this interaction with Nicodemus that Jesus, the the Creator of all things, was willing to spend one-on-one time with this man just as He is willing to spend one-on-one time with us here today, each and every one of us. I pray that you would prompt our hearts. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, God. I pray that you would move over our hearts, Lord. And for the heart that needs a Savior today, God, move in a way that they see their need. Remove the veil from their eyes, God, that they might repent and place their faith in you. 
for those of us that have walked with you that are born again, born of water and of the Spirit. I pray that you would empower us through the, the strength of your Spirit to be your witnesses, to be your light in this world, God. To shine brightly for you, God. To not hide it under a bushel. To go into all the world and to make disciples. As we sang, we've heard the voice of the Lord. And you're asking, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Well, I pray that our hearts today would say, here I am, Lord. Send me. And that we would go in your strength and in your power for your fame and for your renown. That's the desire of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.